uh, read uh, from Luke, uh, the Gospel of Luke, and uh, it's probably going to be on the screen. It's in your news sheet. Uh, if you've bought a Bible, if you've got your app, or if you can just close your eyes and listen, uh, listen to Luke. We're going to start at the beginning, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those whom from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Philophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. In the time of King Herod of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, He was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time came for the burning of the incense came, all of the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, He is never to take wine or other fermented drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zachariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well on in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news and now you will be silent and you will not be able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true in their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realised he'd seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but he remained unable to speak. 
When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favour and taken away my disgrace among the people. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at these words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. And you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How can this be? Mary asked the angel. Since I am a virgin... The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One will be born, will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. This is the word of the Lord. The sun has not yet come over the horizon. And the pre-dawn sky casts the air above Jerusalem in hues of blue and purple. The morning is cold. You can see your breath fogging in front of your face as you make your way through the streets towards the house of Yahweh. The closer you get to the temple, the busier the streets become until you find yourself moving into the outer courtyard with hundreds of fellow Israelites here to witness the morning sacrifice, to sing psalms of praise and pray to the God of your ancestors. You're here because you trust in Yahweh. You strive to love and obey him because you believe in his power and faithfulness to fulfill the promises he's made in the scriptures. Promises of a voice crying in the wilderness, of Israel turning back to God, of a king from the line of David and the eternity of peace and flourishing which that king will usher in. Even after 400 years of silence from the prophets, centuries of violent oppression, you believe that one day these promises will be fulfilled. And so you gather here in the temple with all the other faithful Israelites. As two of the priests emerge from the temple, leaving their third elderly companion to complete the incense ritual they've set up, you and all the faithful remnant 
kneel down in the courtyard to pray. To ask the Lord to fulfil the promises that he's made. And so, in the silence of the morning, as the sun just touches the top of the temple structure, you pray. And pray. And pray. You peek open your eyes to glance around and see that you aren't the only ones and notice that this seems to be taking longer than normal. The sun is well and truly over the wall of the outer courtyard and the priests standing near the entrance both look quite concerned. They begin to talk quietly to one another. Just as you start to wonder whether you should quietly leave and get started with the rest of the day, the temple door grinds open and the elderly priest comes stumbling down the steps, gesturing wildly to his companions But as far as you can tell, he's not saying anything. A murmur goes up from the crowd as you wonder at what on earth might have been happening inside the temple. Eventually, after much discussion, the crowd disperses and you leave to prepare for the day's work. A little surprised, a little confused, but still confidently holding on to the hope you have in Yahweh and in the promises he'll one day fulfill. The Bible is full of promises. Big promises. Promises which God has made out of his love for us and his commitment to reconcile us to himself despite how broken and and sinful we might be. Promises of salvation of restoration, blessing, judgment, renewal. Promises which, if they were to eventuate, would result in a complete upheaval of our lives, our experiences, the entire created order. These are the promises the people gathered in the temple courtyard 2,000 years ago were awaiting. And in all likelihood, with such grand promises, they were probably expecting a grand Fulfillments to finally bring them about. Something big. Something extraordinary. And in our passage tonight, we do see the beginning of the fulfillment of these promises. But what we see is actually something surprisingly ordinary. In the confusion of the temple courtyard, as the newly mute Zechariah tries to innovate Israeli sign language, we see the first signs of the promises coming to fruition, though almost nobody realised it. Admittedly, this story is not entirely ordinary. We've got visions from angels, miraculous conception. The the heralding and the instigation of the fulfilment is miraculous. But when the celestial dust settles, the only sign we're left with of Gabriel even being there is that Elizabeth and Mary are pregnant. God's ancient promises are about to be fulfilled. The world is about to change. And the only sign we have is that two women in outback Israel are experiencing morning sickness. Now, pregnancy is a big deal. The 2am wake-up calls of my own four-month-old are a constant reminder of its wonder and consequence. But it's not world-changing, big. It's not eternal kingdom of God, big. 
1,957 babies have been born around the world since I started speaking. Uh, Childbirth is one of the most common and, and foundational elements of human experience. And yet, these women and their babies are the way that God chooses to bring about his promises. Extraordinary promises. Ordinary means. So as we dive into our passage tonight, we're going to be thinking through exactly what are the extraordinary promises God makes. What are the ordinary means he employs to fulfill them? And what are the implications of that? For us and for the Christmas season. Let's get into it. We'll have a look at the first of our two stories uh, from verses 5 to 25, Zechariah finding out about his soon-to-be son. So the elderly Zechariah is in the temple lighting incense, something which has deep uh, connections to prayer in the Bible. So, So Zechariah would have likely been praying as he did this. Then all of a sudden the angel Gabriel appears and says, relax, God's answering your prayer, you're going to have a son, it's going to be awesome. And then he says some very specific things about what's going to be so awesome about this son. Gabriel says, verse 16, he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now that all sounds pretty neat. If I had an angel come and tell me that my son Ezra was going to grow up to do something amazing, like write and direct Star Wars Episode 10 to choose something completely random, I'd be pretty chuffed. It'd be awesome news for me, and it's awesome news for Zechariah, A, that he's going to have a son, and B, that his son is going to grow up to do all these great things. But it's more than just good news for Zechariah. It's good news for all of Israel. Because these these future deeds Gabriel announces aren't random acts of godliness, but the fulfilment of ancient biblical prophecy. Promises of comfort and future hope from God to his people now becoming reality. Promises of, of comfort from Isaiah 40, of a voice crying out, heralding the coming of God and making people ready for his arrival as mountains are flattened and valleys raised. Promises of hope from Malachi 3 and 4 that the prophet Elijah would return, that God's people would be reconciled to each other and to God, a messenger who would prepare Israel for God's arrival. Are you with me? These are national promises of revival and repentance, the mystical return of Elijah, a change symbolised in total geographical upheaval as Israel braces itself for the glorious splendour of God's coming. Extraordinary promises fulfilled through a doubtful old priest and his newly pregnant wife. A miraculous pregnancy, a joyful pregnancy, but still just a pregnancy. And then childbirth, changing nappies, sleepless nights, plenty of those. It's just life. The conception birth and life of a guy called John. And he's going to do some pretty extraordinary things, but at the end of the day, he's just an ordinary human being. Extraordinary promises. Ordinary means. 
And I don't want to harp on about that idea too much in the first story because we, we see the same juxtaposition when Gabriel pays Mary a visit in the next section of the passage. Except this time, the promises are even more extraordinary. Gabriel appears and says, Good to see you. Please relax. I've got good news. You're going to have a baby called Jesus. Specifically, verse 32, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. As well as the fact that he's going to be called the Son of God. And like with Zechariah, Gabriel's not just housing random blessings at Mary for no good reason. These things he's declaring about the unborn baby Jesus are rooted in biblical prophecy, specifically promises that God made to King David. From 2 Samuel 7, promises of a future descendant who would be established by God as king over his people in a kingship that would last for eternity, who would build a dwelling place for God's name and be God's son. Are you with me? A human being, the Son of God, who would establish a place for God's presence to dwell on earth and rule over God's people for all eternity. And this extraordinary cosmic promise is fulfilled through a pregnant teenager in a small town called Nazareth. And, spoilers for the rest of the Christmas story, a rather unceremonious birth, and traumatic early life as Mary and Joseph flee an infant genocide and begin raising their son as immigrants in Egypt. Not how you might expect the Son of God to begin his eternal rule. But that's how God chooses to do it. And the reality is, that's often how God works in the world. Both with the announcement of John and Jesus while the promises being fulfilled and the reality which is coming about are extraordinary, the means by which God brings it to bear are remarkably ordinary. God is enacting his plan to restore both Israel and the world, to make people ready for his arrival, to send his eternal king. But like the Israelite in the courtyard, awkwardly awaiting for Zechariah to emerge... The lived experience is quite different. It's a a weird disruption to a religious ritual and then a return to ordinary life. Extraordinary promises. Ordinary means. And we can see that concept in things like this. Does anyone know what this is a picture of? It's a rhetorical question. I'm assuming the answer is no. It's something extraordinary. It's it's a fundamental building block for some of life's greatest wonders. Margarita pizza. (laughs) Spaghetti bolognese. A particular condiment without which meat pies and snags would never be the same. It's something extraordinary, but it's also something really quite ordinary. It's a tomato seed. And it is pretty ordinary. These seeds aren't something you marvel at every time you slice open a fresh Roma. But there's also something extraordinary going on with them, both in what they will ultimately accomplish, ketchup, pizza, really most of Italian cuisine, but also just in what they are. 
contained in this one seed is the potential for an entire tomato plant and hundreds, thousands of additional tomatoes. It's an ordinary thing, but the, the hidden reality of it, the future promise it carries is really extraordinary. Unless you don't like tomatoes, but I hope you still get the idea. It's how God likes to work. Extraordinary promise. Ordinary mean. But why does God do this? Why is this how God chooses to work? Is it because he's too weak to do anything more grand? Is it because he just likes to be mystically obtuse? No. He does this because he loves us. God is within his right and power to do what he wants, how he wants. But because of his love for us, he chooses to work out the purposes he has for us through us. He chooses to work out the purposes he has for us through us. We are human beings made in God's image. Not passive pawns in a divine chess game, but but creatures of agency and dignity called to, to model our creator to the creation. And God is at work in accordance with that. Yes, there are angels and miracles and things we don't understand. It's the creator of the universe after all. So much of how God is at work in the world throughout scripture and still today is through the lives and actions of ordinary people. For example, we might ask the question, what happens when someone comes to faith in Jesus? Well, the extraordinary answer is that they are saved from the consequences of their sin. They pass from death to life, from darkness to light. They're adopted into God's family. They are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The ordinary answer is that they had a conversation with a friend. They heard a sermon. They were taught the Bible by their parents. An extraordinary reality which plays out through ordinary means. I take that as a real encouragement. The plans and purposes of God and the promises he makes to us in his word don't require a supernatural event or a heightened emotional experience to be true. They're just as real in life's most difficult or boring moments as they are in times of incredible joy. Now we might think of any of the multitude of promises God makes to us in his word to illustrate that point. But for the sake of having something we can actually remember and hold on to in the coming week, I've just picked one. From Ephesians 2, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Friends, 
as you sit in this room right now, you're also seated in the heavenly realms. As you, this week, sit down at your desk to work, as you sit on your couch to watch TV, as you sit in peak hour on the M3, you are seated in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. With God, in his space, awaiting the incomparable riches of his grace in the age to come. As I say, there are any number of extraordinary promises I could put forward to you as an example like this. But I choose this one because I want you to remember it. Not just to be encouraged by it now, but to be reminded of it daily. And so whenever you sit, be it on a dining chair or a toilet, I hope that something as ordinary as the act of sitting down can be a prompt to remind you of this incredible, extraordinary reality that is simultaneously true. You're seated in the heavenly realms. Extraordinary promises. Ordinary means. It was true for Zechariah, Elizabeth, Mary, and it's true for us as well. God's promises are life-changingly, world-changingly extraordinary. But the experience of them is so normal and ordinary that we can often forget. So let's not forget. Especially as we go into the Christmas season, let's hold the extraordinary and the ordinary in their appropriate tension. At Christmas, we celebrate the extraordinary fact that God has made himself known to us. He's made a way for us to be in relationship to him, to usher in his eternal kingdom, to bring together heaven and earth and redeem the whole creation. And he did this through a person called Jesus, who at this point in the story is a sesame seed speck inside of a clearly faithful, likely flustered, otherwise ordinary girl named Mary. Extraordinary promises. Ordinary means. For you, for me, and for the whole world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you for the way that you love us and the way that you work through our ordinariness to bring about your extraordinary plans for the world. May we always remember and be encouraged by that reality. May your promises give us strength and hope this Christmas and forever. In Jesus' name, Amen.